If you have a Bible, take it out. Find James chapter 4. If you have a bulletin, you can grab the notes that are in the bulletin, give you some idea of what we're going to talk about this morning. In James chapter 4, just to jump ahead a bit, if you look at verse 4, James uses the same phrase, a little bit different in each case, but it's very similar. He talks about friendship with the world, and he talks about being a friend of the world. And so this morning, the overarching theme or topic of what we're going to look at in James 4 is this issue of worldliness. For centuries, Christians have struggled to define worldliness. What does it mean to be worldly? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? Christians have argued about this. And if you look through the pages of church history in different eras and different places, you'll find all sorts of different answers. For example, worldliness has been defined as an activity, as a place, as a technology, as a day, as a program, and as a style. And I'll just give you a few examples of each of these before we jump in. Number one, an activity. This picture I'll put up on the screen. This is North Benson Baptist Church. This is the first church that I ever pastored. It's on the west side of Frankfort, Kentucky, a rural church. The church was founded in 1825. Some of the oldest documents of the church were lost in a fire. This was not the original building. But when I went, they have a lot of the very, very old documents, and I read through some of those. And if you read through some of the old business meeting minutes for the North Benson Baptist Church, and you dial it back, you'll find a number of people being kicked out of the church, excommunicated for a number of interesting, quote-unquote, worldly offenses. Those include dancing, cards, amusements, which means going to the theater or later on going to the movies. And at one point in time, they thought, that's being worldly. Doing those activities puts you in the category of being a friend of the world, and those people were actually removed from church membership. They were excommunicated. Some people think it's a place. I'll give you an example from the, the second church that I pastored. This was not the church. This is Aishan's Bar. But Aishan's Bar is about five minutes south of Kingfisher in Oklahoma. We lived in Kingfisher. And uh, right there on the building, it says Aishan's Bar. And it, they're proud that they're the oldest bar in Oklahoma. That's what they say. And the website, they don't try to hide it. The website is Aishan'sBar.com. You can look it up. So it's a bar. It's also the best fried chicken joint you've ever been to in your life. I mean, that's what's on the menu. That's it. You can get a whole fried chicken. And I'm not going to name names, but one of the praise team members has had that fried chicken. And he may have got married recently. But anyways. <laughs> so it's good, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's so good. It's really, really good. So here's the deal. Some people would say, well, that's a worldly place. And if you ask people in Oklahoma, you ask people in Kingfisher, I think this is what some of them would say. Some of them would say, um, on Friday and Saturday night, it might be a worldly place. But the rest of the week, they sell really good chicken. In fact, we used to have monthly meetings of pastors in our association, and almost every month we would cater it from Aishans, and one of us would have to go to this worldly place and walk in to get the chicken, and they would give you the chicken in an empty case of beer, and there would be your fried chicken in that empty case. Now look, 
We kind of laugh about it, but some people would say that the place itself is worldly. The place is worldly. And other people would look at it and say, no, no, the place itself is not worldly. And some people might look at it and say, well, it depends on when you're there. And I'll tell you one more funny story. When we first moved to Oklahoma, people kept telling us, you got to have Aishans. you got to have Aishans. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. So my in-laws came to visit. We had just moved there. And it was a Saturday night. <laughs> and we said, hey, what do you want to eat? And Brooke and I said, well, we keep hearing about this chicken place, Aishans. We had the kids. So we thought, Saturday night, Aishans with the kids. Eh, probably not, although people do it. Uh, so we said, what if we called it in, and I'll drive down, and I'll pick it up. So I'm a brand-new pastor, First Baptist Church in town, and I roll up into Aishans on a Saturday night, and I walk in, and I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I kind of had my head down low and wasn't trying to make a big scene, and it really made my heart beat fast when someone across the restaurant or bar, whatever you want to call it, said, Hey, preacher! And I thought, Oh, I won't tell if you won't tell. I'm getting mine to go. You're eating here. Some people would say that that's a worldly place. And maybe you would have some legitimacy. But then we might say, well, what about Chili's bar and grill? Is that on the safe side of the spectrum or not? Or Cork and Pig Tavern. I ate there with a pastor this week. Is that on the worldly side or not? Some people would say that a place can be worldly. Some people would say a technology is worldly, and I'm thinking of our old order Amish friends. And they would say, we're not going to drive cars, we're not going to use electricity, we're not going to have telephones in our house because those are worldly things, and we don't want to be worldly. So go with me back again. I know I'm kind of taking a, a trip down memory lane, but when I was a pastor in Kentucky, one of my deacons was named Kerry Redding. He's a farmer. He farms soybeans and corn, and like many people in Kentucky, he's a tobacco farmer. So he's got all this land, and he grows all these different things. He owns a lot of timberland, and he had a group of old order Amish guys that used to pay him money to come cut timber on his land so that they could then haul it back and make furniture out of it. That was the family business. And when I first heard this, I said, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. I'm a a city guy from Texas. We don't have a lot of Amish people. And I was picturing something like this. And I said, so are they really, really Amish guys? Like, I was getting excited about this. And he said, oh, yeah, they're Amish. They only pay in cash. They don't have bank accounts. They think that's worldly. He said, they always pay up front. And I said, wow, that's so cool. I said, they don't. They don't drive to your place, do they? And he said, oh, no, 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 they don't drive. But it's too far to ride a wagon, so they catch a ride. (laughs) They don't drive. That would be worldly. But if they sit in the back of the pickup, that's okay. And I said, well, you know, we'll cut them a little bit of slack. That's not bad. And I said, I bet they get out there with those two-man saws back and forth. He said, well... They use chainsaws. And I thought, what? How worldly can you be? Cutting down trees with a chainsaw. What in the world? But these guys would look at certain technology, and they would say, that's a worldly thing. And for some reason, they think a horse and buggy, which is technology, by the way. You could just walk. 
but that's an acceptable technology. Some is worldly, some is not. Some think a certain day is worldly. Some may say Halloween is a worldly holiday. I have friends that say it's a worldly holiday. And we're not going to celebrate Halloween. We're going to celebrate Reformation Day. I'm fine with that. That's okay. I know other people. I've had people talk to me and they say, we think Christmas is a worldly holiday. Or maybe Easter is a worldly holiday. And they go back and they try to connect it to, you know, the Christmas tree is this kind of symbol or the eggs are this kind of symbol. And those are just worldly things and you need to stay away with them. And to be honest with you, you know, at Christmas, it's not that far away. We put trees on the stage and we decorate. And some people would look at that and they would say, you're bringing worldliness right into the church. That would bother some people. They think a certain day is worldly. A few more thoughts here. Programs. Some people think certain programs are worldly. I know certain pastors that would never, never have a website for their church. They would never advertise for their church in any way, shape, or form because they say marketing, that's a worldly thing. People use marketing to sell things, and that's not what we're about, so they would refuse to do that. I have pastor friends that would say, because your church doesn't have Sunday night worship, you're worldly. Good churches have Sunday night church. And if you don't have that, you're just going along with the world. And so they would think a a certain program made you worldly or not worldly. A certain style. Maybe it's a certain hairstyle. You see people around town and they wear a certain style, ladies with their hair or men with their beards or a certain type of clothing. If you wear this, it's worldly. If you wear this, it's okay. I'll tell you one last story. When I was in Oklahoma, my secretary... Uh, was from the area, not from Kingfisher, but from the area. And uh, she hadn't been attending church. And we were talking to her, you really should go to church. You should attend church. You need to be in church. And she knew that, so she started visiting some churches. She went to one of the small uh, Baptist churches in the area. And she went wearing jeans. Mm. When she got home from church... There was a note on her door. This is a small community. There's a note on her door placed there by one of the deacons. You want to talk about a deacon's ministry? Here you go. And the note said, we hope you'll come back, but if you do, you need to make sure and wear a dress. And don't come in those worldly clothes. So some people would look and say, look, pants on a woman are a worldly thing. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are about all those different examples I've given you. Some of them you may laugh at. You may say, oh, that's silly. Others you may say, well, they kind of have a point. I don't know. You may think it's kind of some sliding scale where certain things would be too far and certain things might be able to slide by. I just want to suggest to you before we jump into James chapter 4 that when we talk about worldliness and we try to define it by something external, we're really missing the point. When James talks about being a friend of the world, friendship with the world, he really doesn't end up talking about anything external that we can sort of locate on a map or put our finger on or take a, an external picture of, but he really talks about our hearts, what's going on inside of us. And so the big idea of the passage is really simple. God intends to rid his people of worldliness. He intends to rid his people of worldliness. 
Remember all the way back to James chapter 1. The goal of the Christian life is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The goal that God has for his people is that they would grow to Christian maturity. And part of that process is getting rid of worldliness. And when James thinks about it, he's not really thinking about the style of clothes you have or where you're going to eat dinner or a certain schedule that your church might keep, any of these external things. But he's really thinking about our hearts. And so the goal this morning is going to be to look at what James actually has to say about worldliness, to see how God intends to get rid of it in our lives, and then to move forward as his people in obedience. So look at James chapter 4. Let's read verse 1 down to verse 12. Scripture says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. One who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we read from James once again and we find serious words. Father, we, we may look around and make light of how some have defined worldliness, but Father, as we listen to what James says about it, we realize that it is a serious, urgent, weighty matter. And Father, we pray that you would give us understanding this morning not to look outside of ourselves and to try to pinpoint everyone else's worldliness, but to look in our hearts and to see that maybe in our hearts we desire to be worldly, to be friends with the world, and to understand the consequences of that. Father, most of all, we pray that you would help us to see the solution to our worldliness. Father, help us to see truth about your grace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move through this Pretty quickly, I just want you to see four thoughts about worldliness 
in James chapter 4. Number one, worldliness begins in our heart. In our heart. We cannot look externally and define it as a primarily a, a style of clothing or hair uh, hairstyle. We cannot look externally and say that it's this place that is worldly. We can't even necessarily just sort of lump a bunch of activities under that heading. We have to start looking inside at our hearts. Look what James says again in verse 1, 2, and 3. He's talking about quarrels and fights among you, and he says, isn't the real problem that your passions are at war within you? You have this desire, verse 2. You covet, verse 2. Verse 3, you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In all of these verses, he's coming back and he's saying, there's a problem, and the problem isn't outside of you. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. The problem is that your heart has been wrecked by sin and selfishness. And if you want to find out where, where this worldliness really begins, you've got to look inside. I think it's fascinating that he mentions quarrels and fights and murder. Quarrels, fights, and murder. You remember we've talked about this. When James writes this letter, he's writing to his people. He was the pastor in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 tells us that after Stephen was murdered, after he was martyred, a great persecution broke out and all the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. The church members were scattered. But it says the apostles stayed. James stayed. We don't exactly understand the dynamic of why did they leave and why did some of them stay, but that's what happened. And he's writing this letter to his church members who have been scattered around. And he says to them, there's quarreling, there's fighting, and there's murder. Can't you almost see his people reading that part of the book and saying, Pastor, Pastor, we know we're not perfect, but we're not actually throwing fisticuffs, quarreling and fighting. Nobody's, nobody's punching anybody in the nose. Murder? We're certainly not murdering each other. I don't think there's any reason to believe that James, faithful church members, scattered abroad by persecution, instantly leave and in other places they start killing each other, guilty of capital murder. And I can almost hear them sort of bowing up to James in this passage and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. you're going a little bit far, buddy. We may not always get along, but quarreling and fighting and murder, we're not guilty of those things. But by now, if you've been here several weeks, you know that James, always in the back of his mind, he has big brother Jesus. And he's got the Sermon on the Mount. And as they start to say, hey, we're not guilty of all that stuff, I can almost just see the smile on James' face where he says, yeah, but. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about some of these same issues? Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So my list of fighting and quarreling and murder really is an issue for you. No, you may not be guilty of any capital offense in the eyes of the civil authorities. You may not have actually taken that knife and plunged it into your brother's heart. But you have fighting and you have quarrels. There's anger in your heart that's motivating all of these things. 
And he's about to talk about worldliness. And what he's saying is, you don't need to look externally to define that. You need to start with yourself. You don't need to look outside and point fingers at the world and talk about how bad all those people are. You need to look at yourself and realize that the real problem is you. And it's your heart that's been wrecked by sin and wrecked by selfishness. So worldliness begins in our heart. Number two, worldliness makes us enemies of God. Enemies of God. Look what he says. These are about the strongest words in the book of James. And the whole book is strong. It's very direct. It's very confrontational. But look what he says in verse 4 and 5. He says, you adulterous people. Calls them adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He kind of takes away the the fuzzy middle that we all wish existed. And he kind of just boils it down and says, look, you can either be on God's side or you can be on the world's side, but understand, if you look at your heart and you find yourself on the world's side of things, that makes you God's enemy. It makes you adulterous in God's sight. The verses remind us of something that maybe you read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. God's about to send his people into exile. And the prophet says this, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Through the prophet, God's trying to get the attention of his people. He wants them to understand, I'm not just overreacting and sending you into exile. You need to understand how bad your sin really is. It's like the betrayal of a wife to her husband. The betrayal of a husband to his wife. It's the equivalent of spiritual adultery. You've betrayed me. And now there's a consequence. James picks up on that and he says, look, if you want to be friends with the world, if you look at your heart and you find this selfishness, you find yourself racked by sin in your heart, worldliness is there within you, understand that you are God's enemy. It's as if you've committed spiritual adultery to the one who made you. I just want you to kind of let those first two points settle on your heart for a minute. I just want you to imagine that the story ended right there. James saying to us, in your hearts you're worldly. Your hearts have been racked by sin and selfishness. And that worldliness makes you God's enemy. It makes you guilty of spiritual adultery. I want to suggest to you that a lot of people in the United States are bored with the teaching of the Scripture. They're bored with the simple, plain gospel message. They don't find grace all that amazing. We might still sing the song from time to time, but grace isn't all that amazing. Grace is just expected. That's what God is there to do, to forgive us when we mess up. And the problem is, We've missed what James is doing in this book. Listen, James didn't start writing to his people and just say, grace, 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 it's all grace. God is so gracious. Every week I've brought you back to James 4, 6. He gives more grace. But that's James 4, 6. It's not James 1, 1. And what James has been doing in this book is very important. He's been reminding us who God is, and he's been reminding us who we are. 
And if you don't know those two things, grace is going to be really boring to you. The gospel is not going to be all that interesting. You're going to want to go to church if you don't understand who God is and you don't understand who you are. You're going to want to go to church just so you can get some life tips. How can I have a better marriage? How can I handle my money better? How can I do better at this? You're going to to want to go to church, and you're not going to want to hear about the scriptures and the gospel that's from cover to cover. You're going to want to go to church and and say, well, don't preach to me from the Bible. Preach to me about movies. Let's do a summer series through the movies. Church at the movies. And we're not going to talk about the scripture or the gospel. We're just going to talk about the latest movie that came out and how neat it is and how it might apply to our lives and teach us some nice moral lessons. Grace is going to be boring. God's word is going to be boring if you don't know who God is and you don't know who you are. So just take your Bible and look at what James has been doing. James chapter 1, verse 13. James 1, 13. He says, God is holy. He cannot be tempted with evil. Do you get it in your brain? You need to have an accurate understanding of who God is. He cannot be tempted with evil. He tempts no one with evil. He's holy. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He's the father of lights. Every good gift comes from him, and there's no shadow of change in him. What he was in the past, he is today, and he will be forever. He doesn't change. There's no evolution within God. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. James says he's the lawgiver. There is one lawgiver. You don't get to make up the rules. I don't get to make up the rules. God gets to make up the rules. He gives the law. Look at James 4.12. He reminds us of the exact same idea. There is only one lawgiver, and he's the judge. All the way through this book, he's reminding us of good theology, good doctrine, good truth about God. You need to know who God is. But he's also telling us who we are. Just looking in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14. Each one of us is lured and enticed to sin by our own sinful desires. We don't get to look outside and say, the devil made me do it. We look in our hearts and we say, I'm the problem. Me. Chapter 1, verse 24 says, we're like people who see ourselves in the mirror of God's word and then we walk away and we just forget what we saw. We all like to think we're better than we really are. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. James says, we're prone to make sinful judgments about each other based on some external evaluation we make of somebody's clothing or their income or their skin color or whatever. Look at James chapter 2, verse 10. He says we're lawbreakers. And if you break the law, you're accountable for the whole thing. Not just what you've broken, but you're accountable before the one who gave the law. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. James says we're people who can't control our tongues. We talked about this just a while back. The reason we can't control our tongues is that we can't control our hearts. Chapter 4, verse 4, James says we're adulterers. We're enemies of God. You just let those two realities settle on you by the time you get to James chapter 4. On the one hand, you've got the holy, law-giving judge who never, ever changes the father of lights, pure and perfect and righteous. And on the other hand, you've got us and all the mess that we are as James has spelled it out. And you put those two things together and you say, how in the world 
are people like us ever going to end up being perfect and complete, lacking nothing? Because the only thing the judge owes us is judgment. That's when James 4, 6 comes in. When the full weight of what James is building up to in chapter 4, it it reaches this crescendo and James says, look, worldliness, it makes you an enemy of God and it's you. It's in your heart and it's in my heart. And you just almost reach this point of despair where you get who God is and you get who you are. James says this, James 4, 6. He gives more grace. But he gives more grace. It reminds me of what Paul says to the Ephesians. Do you remember in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, he lists out all these great things that God has done and who God is and his power and his might and his wisdom and his foreknowledge and all these things. And then he comes around and he says, you and me, we're spiritually dead. This is who God is and this is who we are. And then Paul says, but God, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. That's grace. That's God doing for you what you can't do for yourself. That's the judge making a way for you to be right with him when you can't make that way on your own. That's what grace is. It's God giving you all the riches of his mercy, all the riches of his patience, not just freely, but at Christ's expense. He gives more grace. That's the third idea. God's grace destroys our worldliness. James doesn't build up this contrast between who God is and who we are and then say, you need to do better. He says the answer is grace. Grace that not only saves you, but grace that also transforms you. That just goes right back to what we saw in chapter 2. That true saving faith... it on the one hand makes us right with God, and on the other hand changes us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. That's where he's driving with this idea of grace. He gives more grace. And he quotes the book of Proverbs. He says, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Look, if you get this vision of who God is, and you get this vision of who we are, and you come to James 4, 6, and here's an offer of grace... There is grace. God will give you the opposite of what you deserve. You deserve judgment, and instead of that, he'll give you mercy and goodness and righteousness. And James says he's going to give that grace to humble people. The immediate question is, what does that look like? Who are those people? How do I make sure that I am one of those people? If God gives this grace, he gives more grace to the humble, what does it mean to be humble? Very quickly, number one, humility requires Resistance. Resistance. Look what he says in verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. If you want to be a humble person, you've got to have a little spiritual backbone and you've got to stand up to temptation. James has already said... You're going to be lured away. You're going to be enticed by your own evil evil desires in your heart. But now he's also acknowledging there is a devil out there. He's very real. He prowls around like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. He wants your marriage to end. He wants your children in the gutter. He wants you so comfortable in American prosperity that you don't ever think about Jesus. He wants your spiritual ruin. He wants to destroy you, and you have to resist him. 
That's part of humility as James spells it out. Number two, humility requires relationship. Relationship. Look at verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Christianity is most basically a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not a 12-step program. It's not five ways to make this better or that better in your life. It's not a cool social club to be a part of so that it advances your career in whatever community you may live in. That's not the point. The point, most basically and most fundamentally, is knowing God through Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him. You resist the devil. You're resisting temptation. But it's not just some ritual thing you're doing. It's not just some magical thing. It's not just some formulaic spirituality. It is a relationship with the true and living God through Jesus Christ. Draw near to God. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about knowing God now and forever. So it requires resistance, it requires relationship. Number three, it requires repentance. Humility requires repentance. Look how James describes it. Verse eight, about in the middle. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I don't think James really expects us to just go around and be miserable all the time. But what he's saying is just adding up all these descriptions saying, look, you got to turn from this nonsense. you got to put that stuff behind you. Don't think for a second you can continue pressing on in your sin and then just receive this grace. you got to resist. And you've got to have relationship with God. And you've got to put sin behind you. You've got to repent of it day after day after day. Turning from that sin and drawing near to God, resisting temptation. God's grace destroys our worldliness. Listen, you live in a culture that says this. God's grace takes you to heaven. God's grace in your life means you die someday and you get to go to heaven. That's such a shallow view of what God's grace does in our lives. I think it would make James nauseous. James says, no, no, no. God's grace is going to take you to heaven someday, but it's also going to change you now. It's going to make you into an entirely new person, a person with faith and a person with faith that works. God's grace destroys our worldliness. Number four, we should be cautious when judging worldliness in others. Cautious. This is my best attempt to summarize what James is trying to say in verse 11 and 12. This whole thing's about being friends with the world, and that's true of us, and it's about how that makes us God's enemy and how grace changes all of that. It makes us God's friend. It makes us into the kind of person that God wants us to be. And then he tacks on these verses right here at the end. They don't really fit well with the passage we're going to look at next week. They don't really stand on their own as an independent thought. It's almost like he's tacking this on at the end and he's saying, Look, I know you. I know me. In all of us, there's an inner Pharisee that wants to come out. 
And that inner Pharisee in my heart and your heart always wants to come out and look at other people and say, that's worldly. That's worldliness. That's friendship with the world. Now there's some things based on the authority of Scripture that are so black and white and so clear that you and I can look at and say that is worldly. It's unspiritual. It's not, it's not right. It's not real. It's wrong. Right? James is not saying you don't ever get to say something is right or something is wrong. But I think what he's saying is be careful when you look at your brother or your sister in Christ. Be careful about trying to put your finger on worldliness in somebody else's life. Don't forget that it's not this external thing most basically that you can see or take a picture of or find GPS coordinates for, but it's you. It's your heart. And so he says this, don't speak evil against each other, brothers. You speak evil against a brother, you judge your brother, you're speaking evil against the law, you're judging the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You're essentially putting yourself in God's place. None of you would ever stand up in this room and say, worship me, I'm God. I would never presume to take God's place. James says you do it every time you look at some external thing in another person and you say that's worldliness. Be very careful, he says, when you look externally and you're trying to identify worldliness in others. There may be a time for that. There may be a place for that. But what James is calling us to is much more basic. It's much more convicting. It's much more difficult. He's saying you need to look in. You need to see if you're the adulterous person, if you're the, the worldly person. And if you are, you've got to look for grace. You can't fix that problem on your own. You need grace from the outside to come in, not only to make you right with God and to restore your relationship with God, but to make you into the kind of person that he would have you to be. I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray.